You're listening to Sibling Talk, commentary from a progressive point of view. Now here are your hosts, John Paulette and Mary Jo Tumare. Hello, I'm John Paulette. And I'm Mary Jo Tumare. Mary, have you ever visited the Supreme Court uh, when it's in session, when it's hearing a case? I have not. It, I gotta tell you, it's impressive. I went to college in Washington, D.C. And so several times uh, I had the opportunity, I like had, you know, free time uh, when I found out the court was hearing case and went down. I did not hear any momentous historical cases. And so in that case, it's easy. You just walk in. I mean, I'm sure there's lots of security now, but this was 50 years ago. And uh, I tell you, it's impressive. It's really amazing. It looks super cool. And uh, I guess the thing that surprised me is that the judges, the justices, not judges, the justices ask questions, and sometimes very pointed questions, kind of anytime they want to. Uh, like all the things you learned about being polite when you were little, that does not apply to justice. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you listen to cases, right? So you know kind of how that back I've, and forth I goes. have, and I've never argued in front of the Ohio Supreme Court but I have argued before courts of appeal in Ohio. So it's basically the same concept, the oral argument. You're prepared to argue your case, but what you're really prepared to do is answer questions that feel like they come out of nowhere, but they don't because for the lawyers, the amount of preparation for a oral argument is truly stunning and um, because you have to be ready for any question, not just things you've briefed and that you've thought about, but the random stuff you haven't thought about. So um, it's, as you can imagine from watching that or listening um, on the radio, it's, um, it's a hard thing to do. You know, for, for a lawyer, it's a very difficult thing to do. Sure it is. And I, I'm actually leading up to something with all this conversation. I, I've always found the court impressive. I think Americans really kind of revere the court. And, you know, within our lifetimes, and mine, uh, there have been a series of times when the court seemed to be the institution that brought us towards justice. Uh, you know, the Brown case on uh, school segregation uh, in the 60s, Things like uh, taking care of criminal rights. You know, the one thing about law and criminal justice that every American knows is what a Miranda warning is. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you where Miranda came from, but they know that. And then that continued into uh, the right to abortion. I think that feeling, that important feeling that we have a safeguard uh, that is above the fray, above politics, and will think in terms of the law, the facts of the case, and will think in terms of justice. I think 
Americans is going away. And I think that's a really sad thing. Well, I, I think you're right, but it would be also important to remember that that view of the court may be relatively recent as well. So I think when, when we think about the court and, you know, Ben being the, the moral universe toward justice, we're really thinking about the Warren court would be, which during the time frame you're describing the 60s and the 70s. And, you know, when we talk about culture wars and the issues um, that surround the culture wars, wars, I think those are cultural changes that occurred during the 70s but were recognized as constitutionally protected rights by the Warren Court. And um, now, I, I don't know exactly what time frame we're talking about, but um, so Brown v. Board of Education would be a good example of that in the case that um, said that separate but equal did not meet the constitutional test of equal protection. And um, even the line of cases we've been talking about the last few weeks, which are the, um, the substantive due process case, the unenumerated rights of the Constitution that are protected, um, the right to um, intimate decisions, family decisions that you make without um, government interference. You know, those are the kind, the Miranda rights of constitutional uh, protections uh, for criminal defendants. You know, all of those are that, are that. So, you know, so I think a lot of people have been discussing how did we get where we are today? And I think I've mentioned this before in the 70s, um, and particularly during the 80s, a group, a newly formed group called the Federalist Society was a group of lawyers um, that decided that conservative lawyers were going to have the opportunities to, to um, make those decisions and that the Constitution should be read differently than um, it was being read in the 60s and 70s. You know, I mean, what is that? But it's constitutional interpretation. So just, you know, to finish that thought, when, when people are in law school and they study constitutional law, or as we affectionately call it, con law, you know, you're, that's what you're studying. This is the constitution and what does it mean and how is it interpreted and what are the major cases you know, what gives the right, the, the court the right under the Constitution to interpret the Constitution? Is that the court's job? You know, these are all things that had to be worked out in the founding. And then when I was in law school in the late, in the late 80s, you know, we didn't really talk about originalism. I mean, I guess I, I'd heard that term, but that's you know, now that's the thing. You have this whole group of lawyers that say, what did the founders mean? And we get from that theory in the Federalist Society's grooming of lawyers to the Constitution means what it meant 
in the 1700s and nary, <laughs> nary a new right shall come. Well, I think you're exactly right. I mean, historian John Meacham points uh, to the beginning of what you properly identify the development of the Federal Society and whatever. He points to the ruling that barred school prayer. And he said he feels that began to activate uh, among the religious right this strong feeling that uh, the court was interfering based on these unenumerated uh, rights uh, with the way American and American Christians wanted to live their life. And, you know, we heard for many, many years, I'd hear from just regular folks, well, if we, had, if we still had prayer in school, we wouldn't have that problem. That's what went wrong when we got rid of prayer in school, it, it became kind of a symbol for what so many people on the right saw as the disintegration of America uh, during the 1960s with its effects in, in the 1970s. And other things certainly came together with that. The Beatles, Vatican Council, uh, you know, put them all together. Uh, hippies marching, uh, although hippies actually never marched, they went and sat peacefully, but long-haired people uh, marching uh, against uh, the war in Vietnam. And I, I, think there's, I think there's truth to that in a way, because certainly in their view, it goes from the prayer ruling into birth control ruling to one thing after another. And all that time, conservatives who were playing a very long game said we have to take over the court and now it's happened that's a that's that points to an interesting line of cases and thinking under the separation of church and state and seeing schools as not instruments of you know the um uh community mores let me say but instead, state institutions that for whom the for for which the Constitution has uh, rules, because another thing that happened around that same time, job was desegregation. So you had Brown versus Board of Education, and then you had the busing cases that came out of that, where. Um, the courts were saying, now this isn't the Supreme Court necessarily, but when the Federalist Society thinks of the courts, they think about all three levels, the district court, the courts of appeal, and the Supreme Court. But um, I don't know if this is true, so you know, I'm not a historian, but I think a lot of folks also were unhappy with the results of Brown v. Board of Education, like they understood it, like, okay, yeah, I get that you gotta, everybody's got to have a good education. But if the good education meant you imposing on me and my kids, then I don't care that much about a good education. And that was a battle. I mean, the, the busing is complicated, and there's a whole historical conversation about that. But you went from one thing after another thing, think that for average Americans, average white 
Americans that saw the, the court as the institution that was betraying them. You're exactly right with this. And nowhere was that clearer than in Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah. Uh, and certainly went on many other cities. Well, there Boston. Was, yeah. yeah. There was a judge. And, uh, man, you may remember his name. Yeah, but, Batiste, Judge Batista. Batista. And he was appointed essentially like the master, right? With, right. Uh, and his job was to uh, get on the ground and implement uh, uh, Brown v. Topeka and to make this integration happen. And it at that time, many parts of Cleveland uh, were still kind of ethnic enclaves. And Cleveland was made up as Chicago was in many other cities and Boston uh, in its, its own way with you know, a group of Polish or Slovenian, very tight communities that centered around their school. And so when busing came to those schools, it absolutely uh, tore all of that apart. And I think for those people, for those communities who coincident, not coincidentally, but it's worth noting, uh, had been very strong democratic working class uh, voters they looked at it and said, who's doing this? A judge. Where's a judge come from? A court. And so this all flows, just as you suggested, it did down from the Supreme Court. And they saw it. And they said, it is time to pick up roots, leave the city, get out to a suburb as quickly as we can uh, before we're, you know, we're any more affected affected by this. So, John, you know, you think, oh, we're living through this horrendous time of cultural change and we can survive this. And I just think it's worth remembering that all times of human history are times of great change because it's the nature of humanity. And so those times for many people were times of amazing upheaval. So while all that's happening in the law schools, folks are saying, conservative lawyers are saying, whoa, 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 we're turning out too many liberals. And so we need to recognize and elevate conservative lawyers. And so if you were, and this is what we see resulting in the court right now, that's not to say any one of those lawyers isn't a good lawyer that um, is sitting on the Supreme Court right now. It's not what I mean. But if you're a Brett Kavanaugh and you're very conservative, right? I mean, he was raised a Jesuit educated, sad to say, you know, and you're very conservative in law school and you're in one of the top law schools and you join the Federalist Society, your career then becomes set, right? You are groomed and given opportunities to be sitting on the courts that just a run-of-the-mill good lawyer like me would never have had. Wow, Mary, maybe you should have been a religious fundamentalist. <laughs> I know I missed my chance. <laughs> I know. I, I, I just, 
I don't know if you were a perfect fit for I that. I don't think so. I would have been a poser for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, All right. Well, I think I'm going to go into mm -hmm. school. I am going to pray in school, but I, I teach in a Catholic school. So that doesn't make a lot of difference. I guess. But don't pose, John. Don't pose. Oh, no. No. <laughs> What's this? Up? Strike a pose. Just, okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Sibling Talk is a JMP production. Theme song by David Paulette.